All right, listeners. Well, you can weigh in and tell us what you thought about last week. Um, Nate seems to be quite dedicated to the position uh, that nothing happened last week. That's a straw man. All right, let's let's dive in. We don't have that much time. We've got to cover five topics. Are we in couples counseling, Galen? Nate, I value I value your opinion. You are heard. I want you to know that what you say matters even if we disagree and that the disagreement <laughs> comes from a place of respect and not from a place of distrust. I appreciate it. That's what I need All to right. hear. Okay, now I'm in a now I'm in a better mood. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. A lot happened while I was out last week. This seems to be a trend for some reason. Senators Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer announced that they reached an agreement on a climate, tax, and healthcare bill, an outcome that seemed unlikely just weeks prior. Congress passed the CHIPS Act, adding to its now sizable list of successful bipartisan legislation. Also, a debate broke out over whether the United States is currently in a recession after second quarter annualized GDP numbers showed a 0.9% contraction. That marks two consecutive quarters of contraction, a common definition for recession. In addition to that, the Washington Post reported for the first time that former President Trump's actions are part of the Department of Justice's January 6th criminal investigation and... Former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang joined forces with two centrist groups to relaunch a third party that he started last year, the Forward Party. Usually, we focus on just a couple topics on Mondays, but today we're going to do things a little differently and try to do a roundup of everything that happened last week, talk about what it all says about our politics and maybe upcoming elections. And here with me to do all of that is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hello, Nate. Hello, everybody. Also here with us is Sarah Frostenson, politics editor. Hello, Sarah. How's it going? Good. Hey, y'all. We're not going to quite dive into it all today because we have other things to talk about. But I should say that the start of August means that the primary calendar is heating up again. There are elections on Tuesday in Arizona, Missouri, Michigan, Kansas, Washington, and Tennessee. We're going to be live blogging those elections on Tuesday night, so you can tune in on the website. And then, of course, check your podcast feeds on Wednesday for a roundup of what happened. All right, let's get to today's topics. Last Wednesday night, shortly after the Senate passed the Chips and Science Act, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin announced that they had reached a deal on a $700 billion climate tax and health care bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. The details are still being worked out, but in broad strokes, it would spend $369 billion on energy and climate with the goal of reducing emissions 40% below 2005 levels by 2030. It would reduce the deficit by $300 billion, allow Medicare to negotiate the costs of some prescription drugs, extend Affordable Care Act subsidies for another three years, and end a corporate tax loophole. All right, so maybe not to be redundant here, since Nate doesn't think anything happened last week, but how significant of a piece of legislation is this in terms of costs and scope before we get into, like, the politics of it all? It's big. Like, you know, this I did really think was big news last week. Um, And yes, the politics of it is that it took Democrats, Republicans, everyone by surprise. But, you know, it's not the initial ballpark figure that Democrats were pushing for way back in 2021. But 
they didn't think anything was on the table. And now they're going to pass something presumably on climate change. There's, you know, I think a number of possible ways that this bill could still tank, which we'll talk about. Um, But in and of itself, it's a big deal. Back in my day, a $700 billion bill was considered a lot of money. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Wait, are you just drunk? Is that what we're dealing with? Not not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So, uh, you know, give me a little more context, Nate. No, it is. I mean, we can have a broader discussion about kind of what the Biden agenda has accomplished, right? But if you have this plus the COVID spending bill plus the infrastructure bill plus a few bipartisan things like the guns bill and the chips bill, then it starts to become like a fairly weighty agenda for for the first two years of a presidency, which is people covering politics. I mean, you know, we're not economists, though I have my degree in economics, right? That's kind of, I think, more of the narrative story, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, also interesting kind of what winds up being prioritized in this bill and what doesn't. Interesting in what way? Efforts to expand the welfare state with new types of tax credits and so forth are not things that survived, right? It's more kind of reinforcing existing programs plus climate spending. You know, it is, I think, interesting at least that if Manchin was one of the veto points that classically West Virginia is a fossil fuel state and the fact that he's actually more on board with the climate provisions and with some of the other stuff is, I think, just kind of interesting. I'm not sure you would have- Like a child tax credit, you mean? Yeah. I mean, I think partly it's, you know, my theory is this partly has to do with like what have been long-term democratic priorities that have buy-in from- interest groups and from senators themselves, right? And climate has kind of been on the radar longer. I thought some of the problem with Build Back Better, by the way, I don't know if we should be using these terms. I mean, it's a disputed fact whether the bill would increase, decrease, or have no effect on inflation, right? So I always feel a little bit weird about like, you know. That was going to be my uh, second question. Is the Inflation Reduction Act an accurate name? (laughs) Not clear. Not clear, I guess, is the answer. But I think there is maybe a lesson here that things that are longstanding priorities, right? Healthcare, climate are certainly longstanding priorities of the Democratic Party. A child tax credit felt like it was not something that was discussed that much on the campaign trail in 2020. Um, I thought one problem with Build Back Better is that Biden seemed to invent a whole bunch of social programs that maybe people liked, maybe they didn't, but that they hadn't really spent much time trying to build urgency for. I thought that was kind of a mistake. It was kind of a laundry list. And so this is like a more tidy and efficient bill in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I would add two things to Nate's point. First being that, right, climate change is something that is hugely important among Democrats. I've been really surprised to the extent to which they rate it as a top issue. You don't see that among independent voters and Republicans, but for Democrats, it's really important. I also think with this bill versus like the child tax care credit, Manchin could come from a point of leverage and negotiate more with like fossil fuel industries um, and get the kind of provisions in the bill itself and kind of bring home the bacon to West Virginia. Um, And that was a big way in which this bill changed from the way it was initially written back in 2021. Um, And just, I think there was more room to negotiate if you're someone like Manchin on this. Right, like part of what he got was an agreement that there would be an expedited approval process for infrastructure that could carry, you know, natural gas pipelines, for example, things like that, Um, I think is what you're talking about, Sarah, right? 
Right. And drilling that Biden had said was off the table is very much in this bill. So it's it's something where it's advancing at, you know, priorities of the Biden administration, but still very much also accomplishing things that were important to Manchin. We talked a little bit about the intraparty dynamics here. When we look at the broader public, is this a popular set of proposals? I don't know if there's been enough time to take polls on this new bill. In general, I don't think polling on Build Back Better was terribly useful because like people don't know what's in it. You know, actually some of the stuff that got axed out, like the child tax credit was not actually that popular necessarily. Nate, let me read you what I have from Gallup and you tell me if you think we know the issue polling is complicated. Um, And so I'm curious what you think of how Gallup puts this together. They asked a bunch of policy-related questions to climate, and it seemed like they were pretty popular, and this was in March of 2022. Providing tax credits to Americans who install clean energy systems like solar power in their homes. In favor, 89% oppose 11%. Providing tax incentives to businesses to promote their use of wind, solar, and nuclear power. In favor, 75% oppose 24%. Setting higher fuel efficiency standards for cars, trucks, and buses. In favor, 71%, opposed, 28%. This goes on down, but, um, you know, maybe another example, one of the things in this bill, providing tax credits to individuals who purchase electric vehicles, 61% in favor, 38% opposed. It seems like a lot of this is pretty popular, but we can always ask the question, like, is this a good or bad use of polling? No, I, I think it's probably right. But also people like like to spend money when you're not telling them how they're spending it. I think the ways this bill raises money from is probably are probably ways that are not unpopular, at least, right? You have a corporate minimum tax, you have um, affect the carried interest loophole, you have greater IRS enforcement, supposedly, which is this big ambiguous thing. If you wind up getting audited as a result, it probably won't be very popular. People don't know that in advance, though. Better watch out, Nate. Okay, All that no, time in Vegas. Not, it's like it's not a joke about that, Galen. No jokes. <laughs> Uh, hey, IRS commissioners, if you're listening, anyway. Um, if you're listening, don't audit me. <laughs> <laughs> now you're definitely going to get audited, Nate. Uh, <laughs> no, I look, I think this bill, okay, first of all, I think this is not going to be a bill that causes Democrats big popularity problems. That's the conservative way to put it. I also don't think it's going like, to be like, oh my God, the Inflation Reduction Act passed, you know. Let's go crazy. But I do think it it certainly serves to motivate or at least give one less excuse to Democratic voters who say, oh, Biden hasn't done anything, right? Like it helps mm-hmm. Biden with his base. I think helping with the base is less important than helping with swing voters, even in midterm election. But um, but it does kind of again, I think even without this bill, Biden had a decent set of legislative accomplishments. But like this definitely could change. The media coverage a little bit, and Democrats can say we've delivered on these priorities. And I think it's, you know, it's not the kind of thing that's going to cause a big backlash. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I think Nate's right in the sense that this bill is very much 
designed for Democrats, right? Like it's passing a number one priority for them. I'm a little less sure about the backlash just in the sense Pew had this poll from May and it was asking Americans, you know, do you approve of how the Biden administration is handling climate policies? And 82% of Republicans said no. So, I mean, depending on where the conversation goes on inflation and the economy, I do think there could be an argument that, hey, why are Democrats prioritizing this when real Americans are hurting? I don't, but like that backlash probably happens without this bill. So it's probably, you know, right to be a little skeptical of it. But it is a flex for Democrats and not necessarily for other Americans. And maybe that's not the best politics strategy right now. Don't know. Although Manchin has sort of like done a lot in the way of trying to reframe what started as Build Back Better to be something about lowering energy costs, right? He's saying like, this is an all of the above approach. It does include provisions to streamline the you know extraction and use of natural gas, et cetera, in addition to all of the other things it does with renewable energy. Is that the kind of thing that people buy? Like, do people look at Joe Manchin and say, oh, yeah, he seems like a pretty moderate guy. And this is it seems like he's the one presenting this or proposing this. He said himself, you know, this isn't a Democratic plan. This isn't a Republican plan. This is an American plan. Does that framing change how people view it at all, even though this is ultimately in large part a big Democratic liberal priority, you know, addressing climate change? I mean, the standard Republican lines will be like, this is a partisan bill spends more and more money at the time when we have high inflation, we need to reduce the deficit. All this bill says it will do some deficit reduction. I, I don't think it's a super easy to attack bill apart from the generic, oh, uh, we're spending this money in a time of high inflation, right? Even though it's raising revenue. So I think it's probably designed pretty well to avoid some of those criticisms. I also think it's like not like one of the top five things that the average voter will be thinking about in November. It's like party people, Democratic Party people are going to be thinking about this. Yes. And it will reduce some of the wagons circling from the left, for example. Manchin is one of those senators who does better, arguably, with Republicans in his state than Democrats, right? And so I think, though, you know, we already saw this was one from morning consult data that came out last week, but there was a dip in his approval rating from Republicans, Um I assume that this further kind of tarnishes his image with them. It certainly angered Senate Republicans. I, I don't think the way he spins it is going to win over anyone other than maybe Democrats who don't like Manchin all that much to begin with. Why did he... I think this is being presented as, oh, Manchin flipped or he changed his mind or whatever. There's another way you can look at this, which is like it was a fake out when Manchin said, oh, it's off the table. If you've been paying attention to how this has all gone down... Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said that Republicans would not support the CHIPS Act if Democrats tried to pursue a go-it-alone reconciliation bill on these kinds of priorities. Manchin said, yeah, doesn't seem like we're going to reach an agreement. I'm worried about inflation. They passed the CHIPS Act later in the day. Oh, wait, we have an agreement on, uh, you know, Inflation Reduction Act, Build Back Better, whatever. Like, what, how, what was all of this? So Manchin has an incentive to make it seem like he's driving a hard bargain. And maybe he also isn't driving a hard bargain, right? But like Joe Biden and Democrats are extremely unpopular in his state. He also doesn't want to be accused of being like a do-nothing senator, I guess. But like, but like he has all the leverage and he has incentive. Like when some left-wing Democrat goes on TV or on Twitter and criticizes and Joe Manchin. Like F Joe Manchin, he's like, yeah, keep saying it's that. It's like, yeah. 
that's helping me in West Virginia, right? That's awesome. And so you can argue that like he kind of like consciously or not played this process out in a way that he both gets to look like a, like a skeptic and he reduced the scope of this, but also kind of gets to be the hero at the last minute. Because the whole time, I mean, again, electorally speaking, any votes that Democrats get from West Virginia is a huge bonus. And people on the left have completely naive views, naive is putting it kindly, about what type of leverage the White House had over Manchin. Like, you got to pull an LBJ and and tell him who's boss and threaten to withhold X and Y, right? It's like, yeah, but if he cares about re-election and the most basic premise of kind of congressional psychology is that for the most part, Sanders mostly care about re-election, put other priorities second, then you know, his incentive to kind of sign on with some big sweeping omnibus bill are worse than more a targeted bill that you can brand maybe half winkingly as inflation reduction, maybe not, right? Deficit reduction. Um, so, you know, I think if you're like actually looking at like what his incentives and his leverage are, that the outcome we wound up with is fairly rational. It's rational, but I don't fully get it still in the sense of, there wasn't a thought that Manchin was going to be on board with any climate change legislation. I mean, I guess he was able to negotiate the bill, as we were saying earlier, in such a way that it did bring a lot home to West Virginia. He's not running again until 2024. You know, this probably is not going to be a huge topic of debate in 2024. I'm, I still don't fully get it, though. Um, I guess... It does put him again in the center of conversation. He was literally on all the talk show, talk shows on Sunday talking about it. Um, you don't get it in the sense that like he didn't have to do this. He probably would have been better off electorally if he didn't. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't think it's maybe it helps with Democrats in West Virginia, but it probably angers. I don't know. OK, so. I, we're almost talking about this as a foregone conclusion and, and as if Manchin is the only sort of stumbling block here. But of course, Kirsten Cinema, I think, is the other. We don't know whether or not she supports the bill yet. Uh, her team has said she's looking at the text and, you know, will get back to us. Do we ultimately think that this passes? I think she is a much less rational actor than Manchin. So I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Yeah, she has been curiously silent. <laughs> Manchin was talking her up on the Sunday talk shows, you know, about like, oh, cinema's smart. She'll be thinking about this, but we haven't heard anything. The other question I have is when we were talking about like, does this actually help reduce inflation? There was, of course, like the model from the University of Pennsylvania that found, no, it actually adds and adds to inflation until 2024. Um, Manchin and, and Democrats have disputed that because it's an investment in the economy. But I am curious whether the CBO, so the Congressional Budget Office's markup of the bill is going to rattle people like Manchin or Cinema if it has been found to negatively affect inflation in some way. You know, he reportedly did his homework and talking with Larry Summers, who was one of the economists who predicted the inflation situation we'd currently be in, but it does seem as if this could contribute a little. I mean, you just don't know where some of the media coverage on this is going to go and if that backfires for Democrats. Yeah, I think the summer's argument, too, is that the tax enforcement provisions will bring in more revenue than the a sensible price tag shows. That seems like the kind of thing that the CBO would not want to make a lot of guesses about, right? Um, 
that's very assumption driven. And so you could have a gap between the CBO score and kind of what um, an economist who is a little bit less process or rule bound might think about it, right? We can kind of plug in his own estimates, but yeah. All right. So I think only time will tell and we'll continue covering the process of the debate over this bill as it happens. But I want to move on to a topic that, Nate, you brought up a little bit at the start, but that this legislation and the CHIPS Act passing sort of puts a focus on, which is how much legislating Congress is actually doing. And it seems as though it's contrary to popular perception and what one might expect in the summer of an election year. As I mentioned, Congress passed the $280 billion Chips and Science Act, which will subsidize semiconductor manufacturing and spend billions on research and development, the goal being to compete globally in new tech. Two weeks ago, the House passed the Respect for Marriage Act with 47 Republican votes codifying legal same-sex marriage and interracial marriage. We'll see what happens in the Senate. This comes after a bipartisan gun safety and mental health law and bipartisan support for aid to Ukraine and amid discussion of a bipartisan Electoral Count Act reform. Last year, of course, Congress passed a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill and more, including a renewal of the Violence Against Women Act and an overhaul of the Postal Service. This is on top of what we just discussed. We'll see uh, whether or not the quote-unquote Inflation Reduction Act passes. Is this level of legislating, particularly in a bipartisan manner, unique? And I mean unique for our contemporary politics, not unique in the scope of our centuries of politics. I mean, certainly it seems like just if you go by like the amount of money outlaid, it's an awful lot, right? You know, maybe the critique is that you don't have that much kind of permanent legacy change to the tax code, although if this Inflation Reduction Act passes, you would have some of that. But like, it seems to me like a pretty robust agenda, given a 50-50 Senate in particular and narrow majorities in the House. I also think even without this latest salvo, it was already decent. That's not even really the question I want to ask here. You know, is Biden's legacy sort of a robust one? My question is more like, is this level of bipartisanship, bipartisan legislating, unique? And if so, why is it happening now? I actually don't think it's actually all that unique. All right. um, so David Mayhew, who's a political scientist at Yale, he categorizes these like major laws. And he found in the last session, so for 2018 to 2020, 15 major laws passed. We do not have the data from this term. Maybe it is more than 15. But I think the problem is, as Nate was getting at, a lot of these bipartisan laws don't get a lot of attention. Or if they do, there's still, it's the conflict that drives the conversation. And in fact, you know, some research has found that controversial legislation, you know, only one third of it focuses on the actual policy details. The other two thirds of it is on, you know, the fighting between Democrats coverage, and Republicans yeah. on the bill. And I think that's something like the infrastructure bill that we were talking about earlier. You know, that was a bipartisan achievement. It was still incredibly acrimonious. And I think that's where a lot of the coverage went. And so a lot of these bipartisan bills just slip under the radar. Um, I think we've had some more high profile ones, arguably, um, this cycle. But I don't know if the number is all that different from previous sessions. I mean, it it does feel like you kind of maybe pulled back from the brinksmanship of partisanship in kind of the Obama presidency where the debt ceiling was 
a huge fight routinely, for example, you know, I don't know, it would have happened if you'd had 51 Republican senators instead of 50, how many like cabinet nominations he would have gotten confirmed. But there clearly are a group of GOP senators that, uh, or let's put it like this, right? Partisanship and ideological polarization are not quite the same thing. Ideological polarization can be growing at the same time that partisanship is steady to decreasing because, you know, politics is complicated and there's a complicated story here. Like the guns bill was interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think part of that, though, was going back to what Galen was saying earlier with the chips bill, that I think there was kind of this understood agreement between Republicans and Democrats that they weren't going to touch the reconciliation bill, that it was dead. And I think you started to see a shift in some bipartisan movement. I mean, we'll see where the Electoral Count Act goes, but that was something that both Manchin and um, Collins co-authored and had been talked about taking up to a vote. But then, you know, following Manchin and Schumer's announcement, Republicans tanked a bill on giving veterans medical support. So it could be that this brief blip of bipartisanship we've seen in the Senate is now over. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there a pattern in terms of what can get bipartisan support and what can't? Because, you know, there are certain things that seem, oh, this makes sense. Like the CHIPS Act truly was like bipartisan in the sense that it was the brainchild of both Republicans and Democrats and largely focused on competing with China, which is one of the most broadly popular things you can do when you ask Americans uh, sort of their overall preferences, both Democrats and Republicans and independents view China as a threat. But like guns, that seems counterintuitive um, to a certain extent, maybe in the same way that, um, you know, criminal justice reform seemed pretty counterintuitive under Trump. Uh, So are, are there any patterns just in terms of what Democrats and Republicans are willing to work together on and when? I mean, I think there's two categories, right? One is on issues that aren't particularly polarized, like semiconductor manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second is on issues that are polarized, but where the status quo maybe doesn't reflect where the center of the electorate is at. So like the guns bill, I mean, gun control advocates would say it does kind of the minimum, or I don't know if it takes for that negative, right? It's not doing things that would have like, major, major effects. It's stuff around the margin and all that stuff is kind of fairly popular. And so Republicans may figure that like to say we are able to do a little bit on gun reform kind of puts the issue to bed. And that's an issue that was benefiting Democrats. I think if there is codification of gay marriage, it would be similar, right? They would be Mm -hmm. saying, um, we do not want to be fighting ground on this issue anymore. Uh, Yes, it may annoy some people in our base, and there are renewed strains of homophobia, frankly, in the GOP right now, if they ever went away. Um, But we're more damaged by giving Democrats a reason to turn out, right, and to say we must elect more Democratic senators to protect gay marriage, right? Taking an issue off the table could could be valuable. I mean, they're not doing this out of like the benevolence of their hearts, right? It's that they think that they minimize electoral damage by giving some, like not that kind of thing, gay marriage um, and interracial marriage for that matter in this bill would be trivial, but you know, it's more than crumbs, but like, but you're conceding some ground in the sake of winning the, the broader war. 
No, I think that's right. And a lot of times, too, for the more controversial issues like the gun reform legislation that was passed, it follows after a huge outcry. Like, I realized that didn't happen after Sandy Hook, which was another mass shooting in an elementary school. And many were surprised by that. And why this shooting in Evalde, you know, moved legislators when that one didn't is hard to know. But I think it's as Nate's getting at, it's just the political calculus looks as if, well, we have to do something on this. And you notice in the more controversial types of bills, it really is a compromise where Republicans don't fully get what they want and Democrats don't really get what they want. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to see where the legislative agenda goes over the next couple of months. There's also going to be a lame duck session, which should be interesting. So we're not done talking about actual legislation, but we are going to move on to more uh, electoral politics type stuff with our first question being whether or not we are in a recession. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, the Commerce Department released second quarter GDP numbers showing that the American economy contracted by an annualized 0.9%. That is the second quarter of GDP contraction after the economy shrank 1.6% annualized in the first three months of the year. Two consecutive quarters of contraction is a common definition of a recession, although officially recessions are declared by the National Bureau of Economic Research, which can take months to declare, and by the time that happens, the recession is sometimes already over. Other factors that we generally associate with recessions, like high levels of unemployment or bankruptcies, have not yet taken shape. Um, And more than anything, this has all just sort of sparked a political debate over whether we are actually in a recession. Nate, do you think that we should call what our, we should define our current economy as in a recession, regardless of whether you think it's important or politically or not? I don't, um, because I believe in the idea that you want to look at a consensus of indicators and not any one indicator. 
And I think the consensus of indicators, the labor market in particular, don't necessarily point toward below zero growth in the economy. You know, I would rather that this also not be determined by a committee, right? I think if you're in the MBER, so before I talk to the IRS, now I'm talking to you <laughs> on the MBER, right? Uh-oh. If you're on the National, what the MBER stand for? Hold on. National, National Bureau of Economic Research. If you're on the National Bureau of Economic Research, I think you should set up an objective set of criteria, can be as simple or as complicated as you want, to define a recession and then disband yourself. Um, I don't like the fact that like they're kind of like at the margin, even though I trust, oh, now I'm going to get myself in a lot of trouble. I trust academic economist experts to be nonpartisan more than other groups of experts. This is a whole other conversation, right? Um, But I do think like when you have decisions that are politically fraught, expert panels have strengths and weaknesses and like, you know, but maybe if you look at like, here are the five or six economic indicators that MBER looks at, right? You create an index. I and mean, we actually kind of do this for the 538 uh, general election model, presidential election model. We create an economic index. So maybe like when that index is below one standard deviation, it should be a recession or something, right? Um, Nate, you should write a paper. Maybe. No, but the other issues, so I guess I actually do have some like kind of expertise in this, right? The other thing about like that, index that we build is that it's based on economic variables that update monthly or more frequently, right? Um, To me, it's kind of useless. By the way, the fact that a recession has not been declared yet does not mean that we're not in a recession. It may very well be that in three months, six months, a year, the NBER will look back and say, oops, actually, we were in a recession back then after all, right? So I think it's kind of useless to not be able to declare in real time based on the information we have available in real time, whether we're in a recession or not. And then you can go back and revise maybe, right? But like, I think there should be some robust indicator because GDP is A, it's lagging, B, it's quarterly, C, there are all types of adjustments such as inventory, right? Um, That can cause it to deviate from from other indicators of economic well-being, right? I would love to have like a contemporary measure of is the economy growing or shrinking, and maybe that measure is shrinking by X amount over X period of time. There's a big enough gap in output. Then we say it's a recession. Okay. So in conclusion, you don't think we're in recession, but you also think the way that we judge it is bad. Sarah, what do you think? It's interesting. Like the monthly indicators, more of a holistic index that all makes sense. I do think it's a little beside the point. Like we're debating the semantics of are we in a recession or not? It's all political in the sense that it allows Biden Democrats to say, no, the economy is strong. Look at the jobs numbers. And then Republicans to say, oh, no, it's spiraling. Things have never been worse. But when you look at how Americans think and feel about the economy, no one's saying it's good. I mean, one thing we found using data from University of Michigan, and it was consumer sentiment data, is that yes, Democrats are still more confident than Republicans or independents about the economy, but their opinions now are worse than at any point during Trump's presidency. And the significance of that is that consumer sentiment, you know, used to kind of indicate you know, how people were thinking of the president, but that's become more partisan. But we're seeing with Biden that that relationship maybe is back and that people generally speaking 
aren't pleased at the direction the economy is headed in. You know, we were talking about that morning consult poll on last week's podcast or the week before about Americans thinking that we were in a recession. It just feels like we debate the semantics of it a lot. The metric is not good. And we're not listening enough to people just saying, yeah, things are pretty bad right now. Right. So to give a little roundup of the data, the morning consult poll that we discussed before any of this GDP data came out showed that two-thirds of Americans already thought that we were in a recession regardless. Um, Two-thirds also disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy. And a third of Americans say inflation is the most urgent issue for the country. That's the highest rated of a whole slew of issues. So... I think, Sarah, you're arguing that definitionally it doesn't matter whether we're in a recession or not as far as politics is concerned because people think the economy is doing poorly. Neat, do you think it matters? You study a lot of different economic indicators and how they shape political views as part of putting the model together. Do you think it matters to voters whether or not we're definitionally in a recession or not? Only in the sense that it affects media coverage of the race, right? Because like being at Minus 0.1% versus plus 0.1% doesn't really change anything. It's a barely noticeable difference, right? There's no kind of magic threshold. So, yeah, I think it matters to the extent that the media fights about it. And that's, you know, that's why there's a lot of infighting <laughs> within the media about mm-hmm. it, right? Where everyone kind of pretends that everyone has this, like, solid definition of a recession in mind where it's kind of one of those new topics that comes up. Unless you were kind of like an economics geek, you may not have had a firm opinion about it. But no, I mean, look, what's more important from a voter standpoint are visible indicators. Employment's a visible indicator, right? Um, prices are a visible gas indicator. Gas prices are, yeah. Grass and grocery prices are visible indicators. You know, markets that they have access to, the stock market, um, rent and housing markets can be impactful potentially. Do you know which, like, have you sort of ranked from, you know, most influential to least influential how different aspects of the economy shape voters' behavior? So it's hard to rank them because they're all they're all highly correlated. And when you have a bunch of measures that are highly correlated, then you need lots and lots of evidence to tease those out, lots and lots of data points to tease out kind of which are most important. And we don't have that, right? Economic cycles last for years at a time. We don't have that. Um, I think the general view is that the single most important measure might be kind of take-home income. So if you're... A paycheck gets larger or smaller, but take-home income adjusted for prices. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you are used to being able to buy X and now the same paycheck goes less far, you notice that. If you have a bigger paycheck and now you can spend more, right, then that you notice that, right? Um, government transfers and payouts, you notice. So that's that's kind of, I think, the single best indicator is like disposable income, real disposable income per capita. But that's more based on kind of the theory than the evidence. The evidence is, is kind of murky, which is precisely why you want to look at like a bucket of indicators and not just not just one. I'm curious, though, Nate. I, th- I thought, and I could be misremembering, that what you've found when you look at presidential versus midterm elections is that the economy generally matters less in a midterm. Does that just have exceptions to it or – I I mean, midterms are weird. Um, Midterms are in part just usually a backlash to what happened (laughs) two years ago. Um, And, you know, it kind of gets embedded in presidential approval. I mean, I'm someone who thinks that, like, the effect of the economy on presidential elections is also slightly overstated, right? I think you have a lot of political scientists who 
to use a technical term, overfit models, which means that you check through hundreds of model specifications, you find one that fits the past data well, um, and then it doesn't necessarily provide that good a prediction going forward. Um, but, you know, so I think like the economy is, is part of why Biden's approval rating is poor is the economy. Approval ratings do have some effect on midterm elections, right? I'll put it like this, right? Do economic indicators add value above and beyond what polls say is kind of the question. And the answer to that is, I think they may be at a little bit, but but not a ton necessarily. By the way, you should also be forward looking, right? Um, it matters more what voters think about the economy in October and November when they begin casting ballots and what they do right now, right? Um, the fact that the stock market has risen, the stock market is a leading indicator. That would indicate that by the fall, the economy might be better, potentially. There is some notion that like uh, commodity prices, uh, like gas will continue to decline. There are more debates over so-called core inflation, which is the more important component going forward. But if energy prices decline, then that would be at least moderately helpful for the economy and for people's take-home income. Um, so yeah. In conclusion, you don't think we're in a recession, but it also maybe doesn't really matter that much outside of media coverage. There are plenty of reasons that Americans are pessimistic today, but that could change. Is there anything else we should talk about in the economy segment of today's roundup before we move on to talk about third parties? Third parties. All right, we're going to talk about third parties. Last Wednesday, three somewhat centrist political groups announced that they are collaborating behind a new third party called Forward. And that's an effort that former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang already began pursuing since he announced he was leaving the Democratic Party last fall. Their stated goal in their press release is as follows, quote, Forward plans to achieve legal recognition in 15 states by the end of 2022, twice that number in 2023, and in almost all U.S. states by the end of 2024. They go on to say, three building blocks will unite our broad coalition and serve as the springboard for the leadership and policymaking by forward party leaders. Free people, thriving communities, and a vibrant democracy. So we can get into the specifics of what their those planks mean, but... Third parties have notoriously been unsuccessful in the U.S. Is there any reason to believe that this effort will be any different? You know, I mean, the biggest reason to think why this time is Americans are just really, really dissatisfied with their two current choices. You've seen an uptick in the number of Americans identifying as independent. They don't really like either party. I think what's challenging from that, though, is there's not some great consensus around what the third party should be. And that seems to be the roadblock for third party bids. But I'm interested. Um, I do think, you know, we are at a time in American history where Republicans have kind of undergone a shift in what it means to be conservative. Those who were not pro-Trump have leached the party, but don't necessarily like the Democratic Party. I think some Democrats are still very moderate and don't necessarily enjoy the shift um, for more left-wing um, policies being embraced. But yeah, will Yang's group kind of emerge as a third party. I mean, I think there are a lot of good structural reasons, particularly in the primaries, while that's very challenging. Um, but I'm interested. You know, my platform 
What's your platform? Free planks, cure cancer, puppy dogs for everybody. Okay, that's good. And taco trucks in every corner. Those are my platform, and I hope you join my third party. What's it called, Nate? The backward party. Backward to a time when, <laughs> <laughs> when there was more puppy dogs and, and ice cream and tacos. Um, okay, so now an earnest answer. Sarah was a little bit skeptical, but it seemed like you were more generous than a lot of the coverage I have seen of this third-party effort. Nate, what do you think? And again, here, I'm not asking whether a third-party, like, presidential candidate, like, whether an independent can be successful. That's, like, a different thing that we'll get to. But, like, an actual third party building infrastructure that competes in a regular way on ballots with the Democratic and Republican Party. I mean, look, the... The plumbing is part of it, right? The plumbing of having the infrastructure for how would you actually get on the ballot if you did have a viable candidate, right? And so it's kind of like they're solving the plumbing problem, arguably. But I'm not sure that's the most important motivator for a third party. I mean, it's complicated. You know, certainly some of the dismissiveness on like kind of left-leaning Twitter toward these groups is A, a dislike of Andrew Yang, B, um, a concern that this group would draw more from Democrats than Republicans, which might be true, right? Um, Of course, the history of like American third parties is not very successful. Uh, You know, the two-party system is robust in part because you have these like two kind of major franchises that like buy up every piece of real estate and they're not very ideologically consistent, right? There are huge amounts of hypocrisy embedded within what both parties are trying to accomplish. Um, and it's because voters don't necessarily care that much about intellectual or ideological consistency, right? It would be an error in some sense to, to adhere to a party that says, oh, we strictly are, we're strictly speaking like socialists or strictly speaking like libertarians, right? They try to like carve out different policies for different constituencies and they do like a, a fairly good job of it overall. So, you know, can you carve out space? It's like right in the middle between the two parties. I tend to think that's probably not where the most fruitful territory would be. I mean, I don't know. Do you want to have a discussion about like, about where I would? What would be successful? Yeah, okay, go for it. Where, were, where do you think the most fertile ground is for a third successful third party? So... And, and you, you should clarify, is it a party proper that has all of the infrastructure of a regular party, or if someone was running for president and wanted to win and beat the Democrat and the Republican, how they might run. And maybe the answer is the same for both, but it might not be. So yeah, we should, you know, having a new party that disrupts the two-party system and like is routinely electing senators and governors is much less likely than having like, oh, Mark Cuban or Joe Rogan or The Rock want to run for president and now they use this party as a platform to do it. Like that is not, that's not crazy at all. I mean, you have had like Perot, you have had people like, I mean, Trump himself in some ways was not far from being this outside celebrity business person disruptor who could very easily, you can imagine, have run as an independent and not as a Republican, right? So running as a one-off for president in 2024 is maybe a different thing. I'm talking about like, if you could like permanently kind of carve out, um, a third party. I mean, I think you'd start out by, I think it would be kind of like populist and anti-elite and would be kind of pro-democracy reform. So it might start out with provisions like term limits 
It might start out with provisions like members in Congress should not engage in stock trading. So it criticized like Nancy Pelosi and things like that, right? Um, it might be anti-gerrymandering. It might be pro-voting rights. So that would be kind of one set of things. I think it would also be kind of like anti-elite. So it might favor something like a wealth tax. It might be kind of anti-Silicon Valley. It might be somewhat skeptical of the U.S. participation in multinational treaty organizations and so forth, right? It might be a little skeptical of like the scientific establishment. If you if you look at things like the uh, Five Star Movement in Italy, they're Eurosceptic generally, right? And so I'm trying to think of kind of what the parallel dimension is in the U.S. and like and like maybe maybe skepticism of the establishment, right? And that's kind of like why I mentioned Joe Rogan earlier. Is he someone who like actually is a little bit hard to map onto the traditional two-party spectrum? Someone like that, there are probably more people like that than true down-the-middle centrists, and they are less well-represented in the current two-party system. I mean, are you just saying mostly somebody who is more conservative on social issues and more liberal on economic issues? I think it sounds like you're saying don't touch the social issues. Yeah, I think you'd avoid the third rail, so to speak, of the social How do you avoid Yeah, that that's you say, my question. Okay, so, but how do you completely avoid them? Because if you talk to normal Americans, they have perfectly, like the social issues are kind of ironically kind of what I think Americans have more centrist views on and people who are political elites don't, right? Like to most Americans say, yeah, I have abortion without any restrictions in the first three months and then with various conditions like rape or health of the mother thereafter, right? Like that's actually like a pretty popular viewpoint. You know, gay marriage is mm-hmm. is a consensus viewpoint at this point, right? Um you know, but there might also yeah, but be so issues. So, are you saying would this third party just support what you're saying? Are popular consensus views like would the third party say I support whatever the majority of Americans believe on social issues? Are you saying they wouldn't talk about them at I all? I mean, it's Sanders 2016. That's what we're kind of talking about here, right? He, he did shift in the 2020 campaign where it was more about social issues, less about the economy. And this was a Nate story, but I thought it was really interesting. Granted, it was only 10 percent, but when you looked at the CES data from Harvard, there was 10% of voters who voted for Sanders in the primary who then went on to vote for Trump. So I do think there's something to this pop. It's like populism without the racism. I'm just maybe a little skeptical that works in America. Yeah, I think populism without the racism and without the socialism, right? Um, So maybe you have like a, you could have like a universal basic income. It's an Andrew Yang thing, right? But maybe you also say we want to reduce regulation on small businesses. I mean, so if you want to look at like, where am I triangulating this from? It's a bunch of places, right? It's a little bit of Sanders 2016, a little bit of Trump 2016, yeah. a little bit of like the five-star movement and the Eurosceptic movement Le in Italy. Stelle. A little bit about- But they of, haven't been that successful. Of what? The five-star movement like originally sort of took off and was like super popular. And then as soon as it got some power, everyone turned really skeptical of it. So that's one of the few advantages that a third party could have, right? Is that you don't actually have any responsibility for for public policy. So on the one hand, you could kind of come out with like an um, anti-tech elite stance, right? Which might involve more regulation of internet content. On the other hand, you might be very pro-free speech because free speech is popular. I think you can just claim it's under attack from both sides, right? And those things might clash, but if you have no actual power, 
you don't actually have to implement any policies and resolve that clash. And so in some ways, like that's the, that's a luxury potentially. Um, oh, wait, so like, but, but is this, are you envisioning a world where this third party actually gets power? Or are you just saying like, this would be a fun job for someone who wants to do it, but it's not actually going to win them the White House? I'm trying to say, if you work backward, let's stipulate that um, despite expectations of political scientists and et cetera, et cetera, uh, in 2028, there is a either third party presidential candidate who has succeeded or a robust even third party movement. What would that look like? And I'm trying to like triangulate, um, you know, what things just super pop, like try to combine populist impulses on both sides of the aisle. You said 2028, though. Or 2024 for that. Well, because it might take longer, right? Um, yeah. We're also ignoring here, like, maybe more fundamental parts of American democracy, which is like, yeah, Ross Perot is an example of a successful third-party candidate who won 20% of electoral votes in 1992 and didn't win a single electoral vote as a result. Like, I think you were comparing Trump to a sort of third-party candidate before. Part of the reason he was ultimately so successful was because he used one of the two major parties as the vehicle for his movement, even though he obviously campaigned against sort of rhinos and establishment Republicans. So... The idea of a populist, independent third party effort succeeding, we've already seen it happen, but most likely it will succeed by using one of the two parties as its vehicle. I'm curious what the argument is for that kind of effort succeeding using the forward party or whatever other third, you know, there are plenty of other third parties out there already, the Green Party, the Working Families Party, the Libertarian Party. I mean, again, I think some of the low-hanging fruit, like corruption in government, right? Neither party really has much interest in reducing corruption in government and reducing the influence of special interests of reforming the campaign finance system, right? Like you used to have Democrats talk about reforming campaign finance. Now that Democrats like raise a lot more money from the campaign finance system, they don't talk about that as much, right? So like talk about the things that truly are uncomfortable for for the two parties, right? Like, I don't know why people aren't talking more about like completely unacceptable for members of Congress to be trading stocks at all, right? Like that's a populist thing that like um, you could gain a lot of traction on. A little monkey and esoteric, right? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical. Again, I come back to the same question is like, are you describing like a f- good job for someone who wants to take it? Or are you describing a world where this party gains real power in Washington? So, I mean, part of Trump's rise in 2016 was he was charismatic. I mean, I think part of the problem with this third party is Andrew Yang's track record's not so good so far. You know, he didn't advance in the 2020 Democratic primary. There was a lot of hype around him running for mayor in New York. That didn't pan out. And now it's like going to start a third party, kind of, you know, the CNN analyst gig not paying off that much. With the right candidate um, and the right kind of FU Democrats, FU Republicans, I that could shake up our system. I think our politics are at an all-time low. Like, distrust in institutions is so high right now. But is Yang's party the right vehicle? Uh, you know, like, probably not. Yeah. At, you know, actually, to your point, I saw one of the, like, many takes online around this, you know, third party bid, the forward party was saying that it's attempting to be sort of like broadly appealing to moderate voters, but that historically 
independent-style candidates, your Ross Perot-style candidate, even maybe the Trump playbook. Like, obviously, he's a Republican, but he kind of like took the party hostage in a way. Aren't just super like moderate. Don't place themselves between the two parties, maybe as you were arguing, but find an issue that is super popular yeah. that they just like beat to death. And they stay on message and they're super... I mean, Ross Perot, it was the deficit, right? He was purchasing 30 minutes of airtime on television to take like an alligator claw and a whiteboard or whatever and explain, talk about the deficit to people and explain why the deficit is the root of everyone's problems and use the deficit to condemn both Republicans and Democrats. And like, he wasn't just taking the quote unquote moderate view on the deficit. He was taking maybe even an extreme view, but just making it sort of wedging it in such a way that he could use it to condemn both parties. It could be the deficit, right? Um, So look at issues where there is a consensus among technocratic elites and then do the opposite, right? Technocratic elites um, tend to think the deficit, oh, it's different now in an environment where interest rates are much higher, right? But like clearly neither party has given much of a about the deficit. And until recently, at least, technocratic elites don't care about the deficit that much. So therefore, maybe that would be a, a good issue, potentially. If you're talking about like true populism, I, I, I don't know, right? But no, it could be something like that. Um, but I think it's more likely that it's like kind of like the the force of personality, right? I mean, maybe you need like, I don't know. I don't know what work is going on in the background, but you don't want some like, you know, technocratic leader. You need a charismatic leader that probably already has some built-in populist appeal um, and becomes a kind of unlikely. Wait, can you be a charismatic technocrat? Wasn't that kind of like Obama? So get Obama to run as a, he's not eligible to become president again, though, I don't think. Um, I don't think he ran as a technocrat either. He like governed that way, you know? Anyhow. Fair. We have to move on. We have like one topic to still get to. How do we want to end this? Are we going to say that this is a good use of a third party or a bad use of a third party? Look, you have a party trying to get on the ballot and that could be meaningful, but it's like the least important step. Yeah. Their platform is vague, kind of sucks. Free people, thriving communities, a vibrant democracy. Okay, pick pick an issue like we were just talking about that's going to really energize people. Get somebody charismatic and then we'll see. All right. Let's wrap up by talking about the politics of former President Trump's legal liability. Last Tuesday, The Washington Post reported and The New York Times confirmed that the Department of Justice is investigating former President Trump's actions as part of its January 6th criminal investigation. The wording was specific, and this is not the same as having an open investigation into Trump himself, although commentators have debated how important that difference is. The Washington Post reporting reads as follows. The prosecutors have asked hours of detailed questions about meetings Trump led in December 2020 and January 2021, his pressure campaign on Pence to overturn the election, and what instructions Trump gave his lawyers and advisors about fake electors and sending electors back to the states, the people said. These are anonymous sources that The Washington Post spoke to. Some of the questions focused directly on the extent of Trump's involvement in the fake elector effort led by his outside lawyers, including John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani, these people said. So this is not the only criminal investigation where Trump may be facing legal liability. There are ongoing investigations in New York, and perhaps the most serious other investigation for political purposes is the one in Fulton County, Georgia, into Trump's efforts to overturn the election. 
None of us are attorneys. We should just say that at the top. But from a historical perspective and a political perspective, how big of a deal is this investigation? And we can look at this through the lens of the 2024 election. Until Merrick Garland says that he is prosecuting Donald Trump, I think this remains something that isn't a big deal. It's all caught up in hypotheticals. Yes, this is uncommon for a historical president. Trump has been investigated so many different times, though, and the outcome has not panned out in the way that Democrats have hoped. This, this just doesn't seem to have real teeth yet, but it obviously could, and I shouldn't be dismissive of it. But it just continues to seem we haven't seen that Garland is going to say, yes, we're prosecuting Trump. And I think until that happens, I remain a little skeptical of all of this. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I have watched a lot of episodes of Law and Order, especially Special Victims Unit, <laughs> um, which involves me to say, no, I, I, agree, with, I agree with Sarah. I, I don't, I think this is pretty binary, right? Does Merrick Garland charge Trump, which is the most important event of the entire political cycle at that point? Um, yeah. And short of that, I'm not sure how much we should incrementally update our priors. Sorry. Okay, so uh, you don't have to apologize. I think, see, unlike your comments earlier in the podcast, I think that's a fair judgment here, which is why this is also going last, because we did, I think, talk about things that matter um, and things that are important. And hopefully we've convinced you, Nate. Nate, have we convinced you at this point in the podcast that we talked about important things that happened last week? I think we talked about, like, I love debating the definition of a recession in third parties, right? But again, these are like fun excuses to talk about things. And the thing that was most important last week was the was the uh, reconciliation bill maybe being somewhat, depending on Kirsten Cinema, agreed upon. Okay, fair enough. Let's get back on topic. Okay. So the question I have here is, you're saying it's binary, either he's prosecuted or it's not. And if he's not prosecuted, this is all just sort of, you know, fun for the press to cover, but not actually something. I say that sarcastically, obviously. When you look at the actual polling, you continue to see a migration of Republican primary voters from Trump to DeSantis. And I am curious why you think that is. Do you think it's like, because also we, ha we had more January 6th hearings while I was away, and also this come out about a potential investigation. Do you think there's a general sense in the water that Trump is facing some liability that is unattractive for the Republican Party and that that is affecting politics regardless of whether or not a, a sort of like prosecution ever happens? I think if you cornered Republican elites and gave them truth serum or I don't know what they drink, Woodford Reserve or something, right? Um, I think they would tell you, and we can discuss how we define elites, I think they would tell you that they think DeSantis is both more likely to be elected and will more reliably implement the things they want because he's more competent and reliable and skilled. And so therefore, they have like a pretty strong incentive. I mean, if you look at like Fox News, Trump has kind of somewhat disappeared from Fox News. DeSantis is on there a lot, right? They haven't covered the January 6th hearings, but they're kind of at least dipping their toes in the water of... of well, kind they of... have. They have. Okay. Um, I mean, not to the extent that other networks have. Fair or enough. other cable news channels have, but yeah. Uh, 
you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial board, places like that are are kind of showing their hand a little bit in that they would prefer DeSantis to Trump. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is that in 2016, the story wasn't that these institutions were pro-Trump. They were kind of ambivalent. Um, and they didn't rally behind another candidate, right? Uh, there wasn't a lot of love for Jeb Bush. Marco Rubio couldn't kind of close the sale, right? Ted Cruz was roundly disliked in some quarters. Um, the fact that there's one alternative to Trump uh, and that people kind of know what happened last time, right? I think it's probably somewhat bad news for him. Combined with the fact that like voters like to move on. They're pretty sick and tired of litigating the past, right? DeSantis is a new chapter, um, even to rank and file voters. I mean, again, Trump has this weird thing where on the one hand he can like deny falsely that he lost the election. He is not president though, right? So if like, if you got, let's say you're in the crazy conspiracy tinfoil hat land, right? How are you electable if even if the election was stolen from you, again, in tinfoil hat land, you're still not in the White House. It doesn't necessarily show that you have an effective plan, right? And so I think that could be a problem for him potentially. So what you've just said about Republican elites, quote unquote, you know, if you give them truth serum, I think what you said initially about like Ron DeSantis being being an effective leader, I don't even think you'd have to give them truth serum. But like, does that have anything to do with the January 6th hearings, the Department of Justice January 6th investigation, the Fulton County, Georgia investigation? Like, is all of this true regardless of that? Or are the two things related? I mean, you have a bunch of individual actors who collectively act as a group, right? I think there probably are some Republicans who are truly appalled by January 6th. I think not very many, (laughs) right? I think you have more Republicans who are tired of the Trump show and all that entails, right? You know, maybe you have some more concerned about Trump's tendency to dig in and, and relitigate personal grievances when you might have a Biden or a Harris or a TBD Democratic nominee in 2024 who has lots of problems on their own, right? Like making an election about Trump is a way for um, for the Democrat to win, even if conditions are not very favorable for the Democratic Party, right? And so, so they don't—they're not like mutually exclusive answers, I don't think. Okay, Sarah. My question to you is: you sort of describe this as it's not a big deal until it's a big deal, which is if a prosecution actually happens. To like play dumb or maybe just to play ignorant to, to to sort of tease out why it matters, like, okay, then what? So, it, you know, if he's running for president and the Department of Justice is investigating him or prosecuting him, why is this such a big deal? How does that change things? Oh, well, you know, we haven't had someone running for president under investigation from the Department of Justice, right? Like, that would be unprecedented. And it would be highly political. And I think that's part of the reason why someone like Garland hasn't stepped into the fray. I mean, the other thing I think that's interesting about this is when you look at polls of how Americans are reacting to the January 6th hearings, you're not really seeing those top line numbers budge. You know, yes, about 50% say he should be charged for crimes. This was in a recent Marist poll. Um, 
And, you know, only 28% think he will actually face prosecution. And I think that's in part because we saw in the first impeachment trial that support for impeaching Trump was split. We saw in the second impeachment trial that support for removing him from office was split. We haven't seen what we saw in the Watergate era, which was that Americans were, you know, kind of split in the beginning. Republicans weren't necessarily calling for Nixon to resign, but then there was a shift and public opinion moved into 60% and more and he ends up resigning from office. We just, we haven't seen that. You know, there was the turning point on January 6th, but then they went back into the Capitol and, you know, some senators still decided to oppose certification of the results. And I think it we just haven't seen Republican legislators turn from Trump. But I think to your point and what you and Nate were talking about, that doesn't mean that he is this, you know, all-powerful figure who can't be challenged. And I think we are starting to see cracks, but it's... You know, it's still his party. And to some extent, if there is a criminal prosecution, particularly if he's running for president, that's a hell of a uh, campaign slogan for him um, to take on the government. Look, they don't want me to be your president. Does that help Trump? I mean, maybe. Nay. I mean, if he were prosecuted, I guess I think it would help him in the primary. I, I don't know exactly. Wow. I don't know. We're talking primary. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not but sure. But not the that, general, like, presumably. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, it's rare I say this. I'm not sure this is the type of question that there's so much uncertainty that, like, I'm not sure that Merrick Garland should be concerned about the electoral knockoff <laughs> implications of, oh, sure. of all of this, right? Um, I mean, yeah, sure. You would hope he wouldn't be. No, I think the harder question is, and it's been the same issue with the Mueller investigation, with everything with the Ukraine scandal, is can you take, how can you connect Trump directly to what he is accused of doing and in his direct orbit? And does what we hear in a political context, which is the January 6th hearing, work in the court of law? And that's just very different and hard. As you said, we're not lawyers. But there's so many complications there that I don't think we fully appreciate and explains some of the hesitancy, I think, to take this up. All right. Any parting thoughts? This was a long podcast, Galen. This was a long podcast. We're making up for we're making up for last week. Um, a lot of news I heard. Mm. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> Was All this right, the most leave- important week in the history week? of the universe? Yes, I think so. Okay. Catch next week's podcast where we rank Even more. in order from first to last <laughs> the most important weeks in the universe. Um, Big Bang. Starting with... Big Bang number Big one. Bang. Last week number two. Big Bang two. Um, <laughs> all right. Thank you, Nate and Sarah. I appreciate you uh, sticking around for such a long podcast today. Thank you, Galen. Thank you, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is not in the virtual control room. He is on parental leave, so congratulations, Tony, on your new little one. Sophia Leibowitz is in the control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director, and Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Bye.